If you enjoy this flashback to the 1920s with controversial and power-hungry Senator Huey Long, be sure to check out ParCast Presents for our centennial retrospective on the Roaring Twenties. You'll find episodes on Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, the death of President Warren G. Harding, infamous gangster Al Capone, and many more. Follow ParCast Presents free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 44, Bloody Monday, and the impeachment of Huey Long. Baptist preacher and Louisiana Senator James Anderson stepped into a smoky Baton Rouge saloon. He ambled up to the bar, ordered a whiskey neat, and downed it in a single gulp. The Capitol was in chaos these days. The governor, Huey Long, was about to be impeached, and he was making life hell for any senator who opposed him. Senator Anderson was just about to order another whiskey when a young woman sidled up to his booth and placed a full bottle on the table. Through the smoke, he could just make out her face as she winked and sat down next to him. A few hours later, Anderson woke up in a daze. He was in a hotel room with the woman. That much made sense. But there, sitting on the edge of the bed, was Governor Huey Long. Long smiled with a mouth full of yellow teeth and waved a petition in his face. The preacher worked for him now. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In January 1928, 34-year-old Huey Long was elected governor of Louisiana. Born in one of the poorest parishes in the state, Long had campaigned on the slogan, Every man a king, but no one wears a crown. It was the Roaring Twenties, a time of riches and glitter and glitz for the upper-class city dwellers who could afford it. Down in Louisiana, no one was seeing any of that wealth except the oil tycoons, Standard Oil especially. They were filling their coffers, shirking their taxes, and bleeding the good people of Louisiana dry. Why should any man be a millionaire when most of the state's children couldn't even afford textbooks? When there were only three major bridges in the entire state and the dirt roads flooded every time it rained? Because the corporations owned every politician in Louisiana, Everyone except Huey Long. So that was the campaign pitch. 
His clear message and colorful, no-nonsense speeches won him the majority vote in rural communities. He delivered cutting insults against his opponents, accusing them of working for corporate interests and squeezing the little man. At one point, he got into a physical brawl with former Governor J.Y. Sanders over tax policy. The pair chased each other into a hotel elevator and kept punching until spectators pulled them apart. This played well with Long supporters in the countryside. In the cities, however, his aggressive rhetoric about urban corruption didn't make him many friends. So when he headed to the capital in Baton Rouge after his election, the welcome he received was less than warm. To Huey Long, that was all part of the game. He had no problem fighting for what he wanted. That was the only way to get anything done in politics. If he was afraid to get his hands a little dirty, he wouldn't have taken the former governor to fisticuffs. So three months before he was even inaugurated, he was already hard at work making new enemies. In Louisiana, the Democratic Party usually held a conference to choose the delegates the state would send to the national presidential conventions. In a time before primaries and caucuses, these delegates were personally responsible for choosing the party's candidate for president. So it was a pretty powerful job. Typically, the conference to choose the delegates was run by the state's longtime politicians, the old regulars, as they were called. As one might imagine, the old regulars wanted nothing to do with Huey Long. They didn't give him an invite to the conference. But after doing some research, he found out there was no legal requirement for the conference to be held in the first place. In fact, according to the books, a small central committee could be allowed to choose the delegates on its own. So Governor-elect Long called a committee meeting of his own. At the meeting, Long put together a different set of delegates to go to the National Convention. He even had himself elected as the delegate-at-large, entitled to speak for the Democratic Party of the entire state of Louisiana. The party leaders at the other conference were incensed, but there was nothing they could do about it. Long had outmaneuvered them, and the law was on his side. Huey Long didn't deny that his methods were underhanded. He openly admitted that he was out to seize as much power as he could. That was the only way he could make good on his campaign promises. Free textbooks for the schools, roads, bridges, public hospitals. A government for the people and by the people. Of course, the people who opposed him didn't count. They were just corporate shills who had it out for the little guy. And they needed to go. As soon as he officially took office on May 21, 1928, Huey Long fired hundreds of state employees, from cabinet-level advisors all the way down to construction workers. The Highway Commission, Board of Health, and Hospital Board were gutted. In one day, he fired 73 dock board employees and 80 traffic cops. And all those open spots were filled with his loyal supporters. To keep them loyal, he asked many of the new employees to submit letters of resignation with the dates left blank. If they ever stepped a toe out of line, he wouldn't need to go through the hassle of firing them. And then it was on to the legislature. Long bullied, badgered, and persuaded as many lawmakers as he could. 
If it took promising a cushy job to a senator's family member or selling government contracts to their companies, that was what it took. Long would do anything to close the deal. And somehow, it worked. Despite only having a minority of open supporters in the state legislature, Long succeeded in getting his men elected as Speaker of the House and President of the Senate. He then had them appoint his remaining supporters to powerful committees and banish his rivals to less important, harmless positions. These moves stunned the Louisiana establishment. They had never seen a governor take so much control with so little concern for decorum. They were taken by surprise again when Long suddenly stopped his micromanagement and backed off. Long's supporters had been valiantly trying to push his bills through the legislature. Adult literacy classes, road-building projects, affordable natural gas pipelines. But his massive infrastructure proposals kept getting buried under mountains of small bills and routine business. Long got annoyed with the bottleneck, so much so that he told his supporters to stop fighting against the opposition. Let them pass any bills they want. Just get them off the pile. Hopefully, the other side would reciprocate and everything would finally start moving. More like flying, the representatives were all too happy to sit back and blow through the entire legislative backlog in a matter of hours. Everyone got everything they wanted. They had no idea how long expected to pay for all of it, but that didn't matter to them. They figured he was making a rookie mistake that would come back to bite him later. They were wrong. After the mountain of paperwork arrived at Governor Long's desk, he sorted through the pile, systematically vetoing any bill proposed by a rival, even small measures he would have supported otherwise, like building roads and schools in rural districts. If it had an opponent's name on it, it was tossed. And his own proposals? Those he signed into law. The message was clear. You were either with Huey Long or you were against him. And if you were against him, good luck. The next several months brought more of the same. Using every legislative loophole he could find, Long begged, borrowed, and stole to pay for his public works program. For the most part, his intentions were noble. He was serving the rural citizens who had elected him, fighting for the little guy just like he'd promised. But his methods were questionable at best, and at worst, downright undemocratic. And sometimes hypocritical. Huey Long had never come from money or power. Now that he had some, he was damn sure going to make use of it. He appointed his family members to high-level government positions. He ordered expensive renovations on the governor's mansion. One representative swore that Long had the old silverware engraved with his name and sent to his personal home in Shreveport. He was becoming the corruption and greed he'd campaigned against. But as long as he was still doing the good work, that was what mattered. That was why he'd seized the power in the first place. And it's what was keeping him there. What Huey Long seemed to understand was that power, real power, wasn't about making friends in the capital. It was about making friends with the voters. Keep the people on your side and you'll never fall from your throne. But you might waver a little. 
Needless to say, Long's antics got him on the wrong side of almost every politician in Louisiana. At first, it seemed Long had outplayed them all, but he had only taken them by surprise. His enemies were biding their time, waiting for him to truly cross the line. And in March 1929, he did when he proposed a new tax on the Standard Oil Company. Coming up, Long learns what happens when you try to tap the wrong well. And now, back to the story. On March 18, 1929, Louisiana Governor Huey Long convened a special session of the state legislature for unspecified reasons. Most of the representatives showed up annoyed. Long had only given them two days to prepare, and they still didn't know what they were preparing for. Their annoyance became outright fury when they learned that this wasn't about finishing up some routine business as they'd expected. Instead, Governor Long wanted them to approve a new tax on oil processing. Long had had it out for the Standard Oil Company since before he even entered politics. Eleven years earlier, he'd experienced their strong-arm tactics personally. An oil well he'd invested in struck black gold, but Standard Oil refused to buy any of the oil. Without any way to capitalize on the success, he lost every penny he'd invested. Long was never really a fan of big business, but ever since that incident, Standard Oil had become his enemy number one. They had the whole state of Louisiana in a stranglehold. They were known for dodging taxes and buying politicians. That was true, but Long himself was also bribing every lawmaker he could get his hands on. Of course, in his mind, anything was excusable if it was done in the service of the little man. Long's dogged determination blinded him to the reality of what he was proposing. Standard Oil was a major employer in Louisiana, and they weren't going to go down without a fight. Lawmakers knew that if they voted for the tax, the company would spend whatever it took to replace them in the next election. After Long made his proposal, there was such an uproar from the representatives that the special session was adjourned until morning. He'd expected resistance, but he'd underestimated his opponents. That same night, the president of Standard Oil flew down from New York to fight the tax on the ground in Baton Rouge. He, like Huey Long, had no problem bribing politicians into supporting him. As one legislator later reported, you could pick up fifteen or $20,000 any evening. They also had no problem with bullying. The day after the session convened, Standard Oil went to the press claiming the new tax would force them to shut down their refinery in Baton Rouge. At the time, nearly one of every three people in the city worked at the refinery. This was a death knell for Long's public image. Paradoxically, Long tried to fight scandal with more scandal. After one young representative publicly opposed him, he fired the man's father from the bank examiner's office. And these weren't the wealthy big city elites Long had been fighting against. They were everyday public servants. The young lawmaker had to take out a loan to keep his parents afloat. Then, in an attempt to combat negative press, Long publicly mocked a newspaper publisher whose brother had been committed to a psychiatric hospital. 
When the publisher fired back that his brother had shell shock from fighting in World War I, Long doubled down, claiming the brother was actually suffering from syphilis. In the public eye and in the legislature, Huey Long was losing ground fast. He had poked, prodded, and enraged the lawmakers for months, and they were tired of it. This was the opportunity his opponents had been waiting for, to defy him, to destroy him. To impeach him. On Monday, March 25, 1929, one of Long's supporters was supposed to begin the day with a motion for adjournment. Of course, if the legislature wasn't in session, it couldn't impeach the governor. But before that supporter could get a word in, he was interrupted. Freshman Representative Cecil Morgan yelled out that Huey Long had tried to have a lawmaker killed. According to Morgan, one of Long's bodyguards claimed he had been paid to assassinate J.Y. Sanders, the former governor Long had fought with in an elevator during the campaign. The Speaker of the House, the one appointed by Long, ignored the accusations. He recognized another pro-Long member instead and accepted a motion to suspend the session. Meanwhile, Morgan continued to yell, passing around an affidavit signed by the bodyguard in question. And that's when the floor descended into chaos. Everyone clamored to see the affidavit. They knew Long was corrupt, but they didn't think he was violent. The two sides argued over each other while the speaker called a vote on the motion to adjourn. Still shouting each other down, the representatives hurried to their seats and slammed the buttons on their electric voting machines. The machines showed a green light when a member voted yes and a red light for no. The speaker counted the votes and declared they were overwhelmingly in favor of adjournment. That caused some members to take a second look at their voting machines. Several saw that their no votes were incorrectly displaying as green lights. Their shrieks of objection echoed through Baton Rouge. In a matter of moments, the anti-Long faction was physically fighting their rivals on the floor of the State House. At least one legislator, Clinton Says, ended up bleeding. According to author Richard Downing White Jr., depending on the source, Says received his wound either from a long supporter wearing brass knuckles, a blow from a heavy cane, a diamond jutting from a ring, or the blade of a ceiling fan that struck Says in the head when he climbed on top of his desk. Nevertheless, enough blood has spilled for the infamous night session to be dubbed Bloody Monday. After the fighting had gone on for a while, one lawmaker managed to yell loud enough to take control of the room. For a moment, the uproar ceased, and another vote to adjourn was taken orally. Those who wanted to remain in session won in a landslide. The assembly would reconvene in the morning. The next day, lawmakers returned to the Capitol, many of them now carrying pistols to find a formal bill of impeachment on their desks. There were 19 charges against Long, ranging from his bodyguard's accusation that he conspired to commit murder to the claim that he had once fondled a stripper in a New Orleans nightclub. In the end, the murder charge was dropped. Long had fired the bodyguard before he made the accusation, and his testimony was full of contradictions. It was clear the man had made the whole story up for revenge. 
but there were some charges that stuck, like the fact that he had illegally bribed half the lawmakers in the chamber. Huey Long wouldn't let a little thing like the truth get in his way. On March 27th, the day after the impeachment charges were brought, he sent out almost a million flyers across the state. He decided to bring it back to the issue that had started this whole debacle, the oil tax. Ignoring the corruption charges entirely, Long's flyers attacked Standard Oil, claiming that corporations were plotting to unseat him simply to protect their financial interests. His propaganda went straight to his constituents, the people of rural Louisiana. At his urging, they prepared to march in the streets to show their support. The uproar launched a series of protests, counter-protests, bribes from both sides, and stinging press pieces. Even in the midst of a bribery investigation, Long swayed legislators to his side by promising to fund roads or railways through their districts. Meanwhile, Standard Oil generally went with cold, hard cash. One senator said the company offered him $50,000 to vote to impeach Long. There was one representative who served as a football coach at Tulane University on the side. When the lawmaker said he would remain neutral on impeachment and listen to the evidence, the anti-Long faction pressured the university to oust him. The drama didn't stop once the impeachment hearings began on April 3rd. A slew of witnesses stepped forward to testify about Long's corruption. Several had stories about being offered bribes in the form of cash or cushy jobs. One claimed Long had spent state money at a brothel. A hula dancer even took the stand to confirm that she had sat on Long's lap at a party. As usual, Long rested his defense on a bizarre loophole. As one of his supporters tried to argue, the impeachment was invalid because it was not on the agenda when Long called the special session. In response, another member replied, Do you think the governor would ever call a special session to impeach himself? Next, the opposition brought out the big guns. Long had bought himself a new car with state money. Five months earlier, he had held a conference in New Orleans. $6,000 had been set aside for the event, and it was unclear how the money was spent. At the same time as the conference, Long bought a bright red Buick and paid in cash. The would-be impeachers figured Long's business manager, Seymour Weiss, knew exactly where the missing money had gone. But even after three days on the stand, Weiss refused to crack. Without any evidence or testimony, the Red Buick scandal died. Meanwhile, Long was causing outrage outside the Capitol. He hoped to pressure his opponents into backing off by showing them how popular he was with their constituents. His abrasive speeches still worked like a charm with the common folk. In one speech, he mocked the judge at the hearings, 70-year-old Gilbert Dupree, for being deaf. The next day, Dupree challenged Long to a duel. Long only laughed off the invitation, asking if there was anyone younger willing to challenge him. Regardless of how amusing Long's escapades were to his supporters, his prospects back in Baton Rouge did not look good. On April 6th, the House voted 58 to 40 to impeach him on charges of blackmail. 
Over the next couple of weeks, seven more charges were also passed. Long tried to keep his poker face on when the impeachment articles were delivered to his office, but he knew the real trouble was beginning. The matter was now going to the Senate, who, with a two-thirds majority, had power to actually remove him from office. After the break, Long goes to desperate lengths to save himself from impeachment. And now, back to the story. On May 14, 1929, the Louisiana Senate assembled for the trial of Huey Long. Two weeks prior, the House had voted to impeach the 36-year-old governor on charges of corruption, bribery, and misuse of state funds. Long had no legitimate defense for his actions. Witness after witness had confirmed the governor had offered them bribes, special favors, and comfortable positions in exchange for their votes. Of course, the fact that his opponents had only voted to impeach him because of bribes from the Standard Oil Company seemed to be beside the point. Once again, Long tried to escape the charges by taking advantage of a loophole. The special session, he called, was originally scheduled to end on April 6th. Since it was now May 14th, the state legislature was no longer officially in session, so Long argued that any charges they brought were unenforceable. In reality, this official defense was nothing more than a stalling tactic. He had been working on a secret plan since the House had begun its investigation. In true Huey Long fashion, the scheme was simple, brash, and clever. He didn't have to convince all of the 39 senators he was innocent. In fact, he didn't even need a majority. Since it took a two-thirds majority to unseat him, he just needed to buy off exactly 14 senators. And that's exactly what he did. He targeted senators he knew were already biased in his favor, or those who could be easily bought or intimidated. To get Senator and Baptist preacher James Anderson, for example, he used blackmail. He paid a sex worker to lure Anderson into a hotel room and then threatened to publicize the encounter unless the preacher joined his side. As the days went on, the governor threatened some lawmakers, wined and dined others, and promised to fund the pet projects of Stillmore. And then, on the third morning of the impeachment trial, Long revealed his trump card. The president of the Senate that Long had bribed called the assembly to order. He held up a piece of paper for all to see and announced that the trial had to end. That paper, known as the Round Robin Petition, had been signed by 15 senators. Long had coerced them all into agreeing that the impeachment trial was illegitimate. Any charges brought after April 6th were technically invalid. No matter what happened at the trial or what evidence was uncovered, they would refuse to impeach Governor Huey Long. Following the announcement, the Senate chamber was silent. Long had outfoxed his rivals again, and there was little they could do in response. Without a two-thirds majority, a full trial would be pointless. The press might have a field day, but at this point, it was obvious that nothing would hurt his popularity in the rural districts. All the scandals hadn't affected his support at all. 
Left with no choice, the impotent Senate adjourned. The impeachment trial was over, and Huey Long had gotten away scot-free. But he knew how precarious his position was, and he vowed not to let anything like this ever happen again. In his words, everyone who ain't with us is against us. I used to try to get things done by saying please. That didn't work, and now I'm a dynamiter. I dynamite him out of my path. As soon as the trial ended, Long identified all his opponents who had relatives working in the government and fired them. He also tried to remove nine of the representatives who had voted against him by recalling them and forcing new elections. In response, his enemies began a round of recalls of their own. Long abruptly agreed to a truce, and neither side ended up losing any seats. But the truce only applied to the recall issue. The governor never let go of a grudge. Even years after the trial, he gave speeches torpedoing his opponents. In one notable instance, he referred to one anti-Long legislator as a jackass. The day afterward, someone allegedly delivered a bale of hay to the man in question. As for his supporters, Long instituted a harsh new policy. He had given out so many superfluous make-work jobs that the state couldn't pay the salaries of its massive workforce. As a solution, Long required the employees he'd appointed to pay between 5 and 10% of their salaries back to him. If they refused to pay up, they were fired. Long still had no qualms about overpaying government contractors as a roundabout bribe, but the chosen companies were now expected to send him back 20% of the money under the table. It was a win-win for everyone, except the taxpayer. But incredibly, despite even more blatant corruption and openly unethical practices than ever, Long's popularity soared. For years, the people of Louisiana had put up with sleazy politicians who worked only for private interests. At least this sleazy politician always stuck it to big business when he could. His constituents loved him, and he managed to hang on to his governorship, even as all his big initiatives failed in the legislature. He leveraged his support into a run for the U.S. Senate in 1930. He won. And for the next two years, he technically served as both senator and governor of Louisiana by refusing to move out of the governor's mansion. Now, with even more power than ever before, Long began advocating for drastic national social programs. His Share Our Wealth movement called back to his campaign for governor. He argued that annual income should be capped at $1 million per year roughly worth $15 million today. With the extra money, he proposed granting every household a basic middle-class income. This idea resonated during the early years of the Great Depression. With fiery speeches denouncing corporate greed, Long's hometown support became national. Soon, Long was regarded as a leading progressive voice in the Senate. He created local clubs to support his Share Our Wealth initiatives, and they eventually gained over 7.5 million members throughout the United States. But he also kept making enemies on every side of the aisle. Conservatives called him a communist. 
He opposed the New Deal because it wouldn't do enough to redistribute wealth. After that, even President Franklin Roosevelt thought he was too far left. Meanwhile, the actual American Communist Party tried to distance themselves on account of Long's corruption and hypocrisy. The Daily Worker called him Louisiana's Hitler. Things reached a fever pitch in 1935. It was speculated that Long was thinking about breaking off from the Democratic Party and challenging Roosevelt for president on a third-party ticket. A poll found that if he ran, he could win about 10% of the vote, and this was before he even announced a campaign. But if his rivals back home had anything to say about it, Long wouldn't live to see Election Day. Some anti-Long citizens in Louisiana even grouped together to form an armed militia called the Square Deal Association. In January of 1935, they stormed a courthouse in eastern Baton Rouge. The state government had to declare martial law and call in the National Guard to restore order. It was a dramatic show of just how far Long had pushed his detractors and how far they were willing to go to bring him down. But he didn't slow down at all. Through the summer, he kept consolidating power in Louisiana, even though he was no longer the governor. He kept using his grassroots support and slipshod, heavy-handed maneuvers to create new state agencies that bolstered his authority. As part of his continuing quest to root out any and all dissenters, Long was in Baton Rouge on September 8, 1935, to force out one of his longtime rivals, Judge Benjamin Pavey. He pushed a bill through the legislature that required Pavey to step down from his position. Moments after he left the Capitol building, Pavey's son-in-law, Carl Weiss, approached him red-faced and furious. Before Long had time to react, Weiss pulled a pistol from his pocket and shot him in the stomach. Doctors rushed to the scene, but there was ultimately nothing they could do. Two days later, Huey Long died. His ruthlessness and corruption had finally caught up to him. And yet, he still didn't lose his supporters. Over 200,000 people flocked to the state capitol to attend Long's funeral. In 1941, a bronze statue of him was installed in the U.S. Capitol. Senator Allen Ellender, who accepted the statue into the collection, said, Long was a doer of things for the benefit of the masses, and his continued fight for the masses marked him for death. Huey Long was undoubtedly a corrupt, power-hungry tyrant. He showed time and time again that he was willing to go to any length to defeat his opponents. On the other hand, his rivals were often just as crooked as he was. Perhaps the main difference was how bold and unapologetic he was about his corruption. Since Long's death, some scholars have determined that his rise to office fundamentally changed the balance of political power in Louisiana. Thanks to his conviction that public office could be won and lost in the rural districts, political capital shifted from business and industry into the hands of the working class. Though Long's methods were often crude, he undoubtedly outplayed his opponents. Had he survived, who knows how far he could have gone. 
There were many who believed he was planning to announce a run for president in the days before his death. It's possible the nation itself dodged a bullet that day in 1935, though Huey Long certainly didn't. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 43, the hotly contested 1792 race for governor of New York. For more information on Huey Long, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Kingfish, The Reign of Huey P. Long by Richard Downing White extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>